So, we're talking about our glorious hope this evening in this passage, and it is a, a glorious hope that we have. It is so amazing what we have in Jesus. And uh, before we dive into the section, there's a couple of things that I want to do. One is I want to talk a little bit about the connection between faith and hope. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, many of you know this verse, but it speaks very clearly of what faith is. It says, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And if you notice, the concept of hope is actually embedded in the definition in the Bible for faith. And so there's this very important connection between faith and hope. And it's a secular thing. The more hope you have, the more faith you have, the more faith you have, the more hope you have, and and it just keeps building on itself. And it's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have hope without faith, and you can't have faith without hope. And the theological definition of, of hope is confident expectation and future blessing, that you know that something that was promised to you is going to happen. That's hope, okay? And faith is the trust in that conviction, right? So it goes hand in hand. There's this really important relationship between faith and hope. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And I want to point out how he is really describing the activity of faithful hope. In that, first he says we need to rejoice in hope, which means we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the light at the end of the tunnel, the hope in which we have in Christ, that is where we're supposed to gaze. And we are supposed to rejoice in that reality. Okay, that's a big part of what this section is about that we're going to be going over tonight in... uh, Isaiah chapter 9. But then he says to be patient in tribulation because we live in a fallen world, as I'm sure has not escaped any of you, and therefore there is great tribulation in this age. And maybe things are going really well in in your life right now, and, and praise God for that, right? Because it's not going to be that way in the future, right? The bad times are coming, right? You can just kind of bank on that, that something, you know, that isn't going to be fun is coming around the corner, because that's the reality of the world that we live in. We live in a fallen age, and there's difficult times, tribulation, hardship that takes place, real sorrow, real difficulty. And so in the midst of this, you have to fix your eyes on the hope of Jesus that is before you. But then he says that we need to engage in a a faithful activity, and that's prayer, right? Right? says to be consistent in prayer because prayer is an act of faith because if God ain't there, you're a crazy person talking to yourself, right? So prayer is a real active activity of faith and God is there and he definitely hears your prayers and, and prayers are an amazing thing because not only do we have the ability, we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight, that we have through Christ direct access to the Father and that we can talk to him and and beseech him about all manner of things that are going on in our life at any given time that is so amazing that we have this access 
to the Father and that we can plead our case with him at any time, but in that he is also able to do something about it. That's an amazing thing too, right? That we are able to speak to someone who actually has the ability to do something about the problem in which we are facing. But the other really cool thing about prayer is that prayer is a means of conversion. See, the more we pray, the more God is able to, because we are engaging with him and and actively in relationship with him, God uses prayer to transform us from the inside out and make us more like Jesus. And so the more you pray, the more you get transformed. And the more you think like Jesus, by the way. So the, the, the more that you pray, the more you're going to pray in line with the way you ought to pray, and the more you're going to see God do with the thing that you prayed for because you're thinking like Jesus instead of thinking like the world. So it is an important thing, this relationship between faith and hope. J.I. Packer said this. He was a great theologian that passed away a few years ago. He said, optimism is a wish, is a, uh, is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. But Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. End quote. And that brings us into the passage of Isaiah. A little bit of background before we get into it. And it's pretty cool because normally this passage is taught out of context, <clears throat> which by itself it stands alone and it's perfectly fine. But we're actually teaching through the book of Isaiah right now. And so the, it's important to remind ourselves of the context of this passage in which we read it. And so a few things to note. You had the Assyrian threat, right, to the north. Uh, this is during the divided kingdom, and so there's the north and the south, and, and uh, the north, they were trying to build an alliance against Assyria, and so they were putting this great pressure on the south and Judah in order for King Ahaz to join their alliance, and King Ahaz wanted nothing to do with their alliance, and so uh, he wasn't going to do that, so he had the, the threat from them, he has the threat from Assyria, all these dangers around him, and the big question that was before Ahaz was, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust the power of man? Okay? And Ahaz, in his foolishness, chose to trust the power of man. He had made a decision to uh, build an alliance with the, the great Assyrian Empire, thinking, I'm going to team up with them because who doesn't want to join the winning team, right? That's what he was thinking. And... God came to him through the prophet Isaiah and said, uh, you shouldn't do that. You need to trust me. I am with you, furthermore, and I will prove it to you, he said. Ask for a sign, any sign, and I will prove to you that I'm with you. And, and Ahaz was like, oh, no, I dare not ask for a sign. Um, by the way, the verse that he was misquoting was about that we should not put the Lord, the God, our God, to the test, meaning that we should not not listen to him, <laughs> right? And so he was doing exactly what he wasn't supposed to do, which was not listening to Yahweh. And Isaiah informed him, well, you're going to get a sign anyway. 
And that sign is going to be, instead of a really good thing for you, it's going to be a judgment against you because you chose not to believe. And, and so there's a near-far view uh, of the prophecy in Isaiah that starts in uh, chapter 7, and then we see the, the peak of it here in chapter 9 of the child that would be born, Okay. And so just a little recap on that, but the, the near-far view is that there was a child born, and it's great debate as to whose child that was and all this, and we don't have time to go into that. But there was a child that was born during the time of Ahaz, and he would have known the child, okay? He would have absolutely known who this child was, and it would have been a clear sign to him that he should have trusted Yahweh, Okay? But there is a greater fulfillment of it, and this is common throughout Scripture. There's lots of prophecies like this where there's a near and far view of the prophecy. And so the greater fulfillment, of course, is Jesus, right? That he would be the child that would be born that would ultimately bring about the very hope and the the messianic kingdom that is prophesied here in this passage, okay? So that's a little bit of background. Oh, and by the way, in verse 1, it's going to reference some things. And I just wanted to give you this map so you understand the geographic area that's being talked about there. But it's going to talk about Naphtali and, and Zebulun and the way of the sea, okay? And so the way of the sea is the area between the Sea of Galilee and um, the ocean, right? The Mediterranean, Okay? So that's the way of the sea, just so you understand geographically what is being talked about there. And as we will see, we'll mention it here in a minute when we get into verse 1, that uh, Jesus fulfills this prophecy um, in terms of where he came from, Nazareth, right there. Um, But it's also where the Assyrians first took over. So when the Assyrians came in, remember he built that alliance, it blew up right in his face and the Assyrians attacked him. (laughs) And so they take those areas first when they come down, okay? So that just gives you a little bit of reference. I love technology. So whenever they make it go to the next slide, it will show the outline of the passage, okay? So we're going to work through it, seven verses. Hopefully we'll get done on time. Okay, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So I want to stop there and talk a little bit about verse 1. So in verses 1 through through 3 in this well, in the first five verses, we see a new day is coming. And so if, if you remember from last week, if you were here, chapter 8 ends on a fairly negative note, right? It was judgment about the lack of faith in the coming uh, invasion of Assyria. And so this is a message of hope. By the way, just a reminder of the three-part message of the prophets, okay? This is true of Isaiah in all the prophets, And the three-part message is this. You have broken God's law, and you better repent. If there's no repentance, then there will be judgment. Yet, there is hope 
beyond the judgment for both you, meaning Israel, and the nations. Okay? That is the three-part message of all of the prophets. Okay? And though this is no different. We had judgment last week. Now we see, yet there's hope for both you and the nations. Okay? So, right here... In a new day that is coming, we see what it's going to look like in verses 1 through 3. And first, in verse 1, it says, No more gloom and anguish, which is a direct reversal of the last verse of chapter 8. Okay? So in chapter 8, verse 22, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness, okay? So this is a direct reversal of the judgment in which was pronounced in chapter 8. And then it goes on and it talks about, you know, like I mentioned, this was fulfilled in Jesus, and we see that, and you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4, it says this. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, speaking of John the Baptist, He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes the verse here from Isaiah. So Matthew points out in his gospel, this is a direct connection to Jesus. And the, but the fulfillment of it is not fully realized yet, right? Because as we're going to get into, like this is a reversal, there's not going to be any more, um, no more gloom, no more anguish, except we, I don't know about you, but there's still gloom and anguish, right? A little bit of gloom and anguish still in your life. So that's still present, right? So it's not completely realized, but there's been something that has been done to begin this coming true. Now in... Uh, theological terms, we call it the already but not yet reality of the kingdom of heaven. Because the when Jesus came, he inaugurated, as the king of heaven, he inaugurated the invasion of heaven to earth. Okay, And so we live in this period of time that the Bible refers to as the last days. From the time of the first coming to the time of the second coming is what the Bible calls the last days. Okay? And we live in this already but not yet reality in which this truth is true because of hope and faith, right? It is a reality for us because it's a future certainty, but it's not fully realized yet, okay? But one day, it's going to be fully realized. The eye of faith looks at the gloom and anguish of this present age, real though it is. It is not the real reality of faith, okay? So in Christ, it's not our governing reality. Does that make sense to you? It is not the ultimate reality in which we stand. We stand, as Paul says, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our ultimate reality. And so even though it's not fully realized yet, this is the hope in which we live. And by the way, it says here, that the hope is for all the nations. Did you catch that? It says, Galilee of the nations. And that's what it's speaking of. It's speaking of all the other people groups, not just Israel, okay? And that is 
the hope of Jesus is for all the nations. It always has been. That was always the plan was that everyone would have access through faith. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So no more darkness. That's the second thing. Okay? So what is it going to look like? There's going to be no more gloom and anguish. There's going to be no more darkness. These are people entering into the light and life of God. That's what it's talking about. Okay? Real living in Jesus Christ, there is real life, there is real hope, there is real truth. It's an amazing reality. So these people are entering to this reality like a sunrise piercing through the darkness. That's the idea here. You know, the sun comes up in the morning, those of you that get up early enough to see one. Um, I don't like getting up early in the morning, but... Those of you that do, you know what this is talking about, okay? Where the light comes shining through and light is shining and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. People tell me about it all the time. You should see the sunset. It's incredible. Um, uh, Caleb, wherever he is, he, he sends uh, some pictures to me sometimes about sunsets that he sees because he drives to work at some ridiculous hour in the morning and he sees these incredible sunsets, okay? That's the idea here. Sunrise. Or, sorry, sunrise. Thank you. See? They're foreign to me. What can I say? (laughs) So this kind of reminds me of a scene out of Lord of the Rings. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. And uh, in the battle for the Twin Towers, uh, there's the huge battle at Helm's Deep. If you know the story, read the books or seen the movies. And when it seems like all hope is lost... Gandalf appears on the ridge. The sun comes piercing over the mountaintop, and he has shown up with all these reinforcements, and the day is won, right? There's this amazing great hope that takes place, and it makes me think of that when I read this verse, because that's exactly what it's talking about. It's like there was all this thick darkness, and that there was no hope, and it was so bad, and then the sun shines. And it was glorious. All the evil was vanquished and the day was won. That's the idea here. Okay? So, if you don't like Lord of the Rings, I don't know what to tell you, but I think it's an amazing picture. (laughs) The way that you walk, it says here, you know, whenever the Bible talks about walking, um, it's talking about the way you live your life. Okay? Okay? that's the, the metaphor being used when it, it, that's what it's referring to is the manner in which you live your life. And so it involves two things. We live our life based on what we think and what we do, right? That's our walk, okay? And the foundation of what we do is what we think. And so it has to do with your worldview and your presuppositions, right? The things that ground you in determining what is real and what isn't and the way you should navigate yourself through life, that is how you perceive the world. We call it a worldview, and it's based on your presuppositions. Things like whether or not there's a God, right? And whether or not he cares about listening to you and different things like that. They determine how you live your life, right? Um, and so it, it matters 
what we think. And that's why it talks about this light, the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when we learn to think like Jesus, we then learn to live like Jesus and walk like Jesus. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you can prove that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what he's calling us to do, is he's calling us to live in the light. The light has shown, and we are supposed to live in that light. So this is transformational, from darkness to light. And it's a reference to creation. Remember in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that there was darkness, right? And then God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? And it says the light the dissipated the darkness. And then in John's gospel, at the beginning of it, he says something similar, right? About Jesus himself, that, that he is the light and life of men, and that the darkness could not overcome him, right? So it's an amazing thing, this concept of going from darkness to light. And therefore, there's this transformational reality about what it means to put your hope in Jesus and in the light of the Messiah is that it takes you from darkness to light. Where we once lived in darkness, now we live in light. And there's this radical supernatural transformation that takes place. This is what Jesus said when he was talking about him being the light of the world. And it's also what he was talking about when he said that you need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a transformation that takes place. There has to be a creational experience in you by God that makes it to where you can be a part of this light. Does that make sense to you guys? So this is what we need to understand about this amazing light and the hope in which it brings. This is, uh, Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved. This amazing transformation. And then in verse 3 here, increasing joy. That's another way it's going to look, is increasing joy. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So let's look at what he talks about here in terms of increasing joy. The triumph of grace guaranteed because it is bringing so many people to glory. And this is something that is talked about throughout the Bible, both the promise that many people will come to faith because of this work of the Messiah, Jesus, in the New Testament, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in, in chapter 2 where he says that it will bring many sons to glory, the work of Jesus. And so there's this incredible hope and this joy of the harvest of salvation to the nations. Remember, it's not just for the nation of Israel. It's to everybody and many from all around the world are coming into this light. This is the joy that it's speaking of. Our salvation is entirely a work of God. In Romans 8.30, Paul makes this pretty clear. He says that 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all God. It's nothing you're doing. It's nothing I'm doing. God's doing it all. And we are entirely saved by a work of God. I like how Pastor Rick uh, has said it many times that Jesus saves us single-handedly. He doesn't need or want your help. <laughs> okay? He does it all by himself. It's an amazing thing. So this is what's happening. This is the, and why they're rejoicing so much is in this amazing rescue and salvation. They rejoice, it says, before God. So they're, they now have access, right? They have access, to something that they did not have before Jesus, something none of us had before Jesus. They have direct access, access to God to rejoice before him. See, back in Isaiah's day, there was the temple, and in the temple there was a big curtain between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, and you could not go through there unless you were the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and even then they tied a rope around your ankle just in case because you didn't have just access any old way you wanted. But Jesus has given us access. So they are rejoicing before God. When you realize, Christian friend, the amazing gift of grace, and you let it permeate your heart and your mind, and you realize how much you don't deserve it, when you realize how much you have in Jesus, it ought to cause you to rejoice. <laughs> you know, just to, to dwell on that and to realize, wow, I'm not worthy. And yet he loves me. And he has made me worthy. It's an amazing thing. And it ought to cause us to rejoice. And that's what's being described here. There are two spheres of joy that are being described. One is harvest and the other is plunder. <laughs> right? And so the first one, harvest, is the idea of having plenty. And, and what, is the, the thing, what is the thing that we have plenty of in Jesus? Grace. That's good. Grace. Love. Mercy. Forgiveness, life, right? Real life. This is the plenty that we have, the harvest that we are rejoicing over, right? And then, you know, the plunder is kind of the same idea, but the, in terms of the things that we get, but it also speaks to a battle that's been won, right? So plunder speaks to a battle that has been won. And what is the battle that has been won in Jesus? The battle for our soul, the defeating of Satan, sin, and death, right? And so this is what we're rejoicing over, is this amazing reality that we have in Jesus. This is what's being talked about here, okay? And then verses 4 through, through 5, how is it going to happen? So this is what the new day looks like in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to see through 4 through 5, this is what it's going to look like. For the yoke 
or how it's going to happen, I mean. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So there's two things that, we talking, that he's talking about here. It's going to happen through liberation, and it's going to happen through victorious expansion. Okay, So let's talk about verse 4 with liberation. So he references two things. One is the language in here is very... Um, uh, it references, in terms of the types of language he uses, the exodus, right? That's their big, you know... For us as Americans, it'd be the, um, you know, when we won our freedom in, in 1776, right? But for them, it's the Exodus, like this amazing thing, right, that God did to bring them out of slavery and to give them um, not just independence, but their own nation and a relationship with God, just this incredible thing. So this is their history. This is their background, right? And so he references that. There's an illust- the illustration of the Exodus here. And the child that is going to be spoken of in verse 6 and 7, the child is going to come in a similar manner than the exodus that took place. And does anyone know kind of some of the connections between the exodus and Jesus? What are some of the connections? Think about the exodus event. There's what's the pillar of fire. So like the, the leading out of across the wilderness, the Bible tells us that that was actually the Lord leading them, right? So, yeah, there's that connection. But I'm thinking about the Exodus itself, the actual deliverance from Egypt. What was the main thing that happened in order for them to be delivered? The blood of the lamb, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so when uh, the 10th plague Right? In order for them to be protected from the angel of death that passed over and killed all the firstborn of Egypt, they put the lamb's blood over the doorpost. They then refer to that later throughout their history as Passover. And even in the New Testament, we're in, in uh, 1 Corinthians on Sundays. And even there, Paul references the Passover as a reference to Jesus, in which we are supposed to remember and understand and live in that freedom and that reality. Okay? In the work that Jesus did to bring us liberation, okay? So the, that's why when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? So we have that connection. We also have the fact that Jesus actually literally came out of Egypt because uh, when he was a child, he went and hid in Egypt for a while because King Herod wanted to kill him, and then he came out of Egypt. And so there's a sense in which just like Israel came out of Egypt, so did Jesus. Jesus came out of Egypt as well. So there's these connections there. It's very cool. And then he also references, like in the day of Midian, which is a reference to the story of Gideon and Judges, in which the Midianites were uh, not being very nice, and God gave them uh, victory over the Midianites in this supernatural way. And the reference in both of these is the fact that God did it, right? There's no way of thinking that in either of these situations that the Israelites themselves accomplished this deliverance. It was all by God. 
Okay, so God did it all, and that's the main point that is being pointed out here in this liberation, is that it's a liberation that is done single-handedly by God himself. And then we see the victorious expansion, which is really, can also be referenced as the absence of war and the expansion of peace, okay? That's the glorious expansion, is that peace is spreading in this miraculous way, and there is now no more war. Jesus came to bring us peace in the midst of trouble. He said this in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, the amazing thing about the peace in which we have in Jesus is that it is not the absence of conflict necessarily. In fact, many times it's not. But it is, it is a supernatural peace in the midst of conflict, in the midst of tribulation, that we have the peace that literally passes all understanding. And it doesn't even make sense, but we have it. And we know that God is in charge. And we know that he's going to carry us through. And we know ultimately it's going to be okay. That's the peace. And that's what we're supposed to remember. It is, as Paul says, a peace that passes all understandings. Philippians 4, he says... The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Isn't that the case, though? We're always anxious and freaked out about a great many things in life, right? Uh, I'm no stranger to that, and I'm sure you aren't either. And, but this reality is supposed to ground us and anchor us in the peace and the hope of Jesus, okay? And this is what we need to be reminded of all the, all the time. So he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is a peace that comes through faith and hope. Did you catch that? Just like we opened up with, there's this amazing connection between the concepts of faith and hope. You can't have one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. And, and there's this active hope in the future reality in which we stand. And there is a present active faith in beseeching God about the difficulties in which we face. And that's what we're called to do. And we will receive the peace that passes all understanding. It is a peace that we are also helping to spread, by the way. That is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. See, just as we will read here in a minute that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we are the ambassadors of peace. We are supposed to be going out and spreading this peace. This amazing peace with God through Jesus Christ and this amazing peace with each other that is only accomplished through the reigning lordship of Jesus in our lives and in the future kingdom to come. 
This is the peace that we're called to. And when it is fully realized, there will be no more war. No more war. No more fighting. No more of all of the evil and atrocities and sadness that come from war. Be gone. This was already alluded to in chapter 2 of Isaiah where he said, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This will be the reality. You know, and, and it, it reminded me about a truth that I have to keep in mind. You know, there's a great many things in this life that are kind of fun, cool, and uh, I think weapons are one of those things. I'm a guy, and I like weapons. And um, I own a fair amount of weapons, actually. And they're a lot of fun to me. But, you know, it reminded me that is not of the kingdom. Like, the entire concept isn't even of the kingdom. And that's something for us to be mindful of, you know, as believers, that we need to be leaning into the realities of the kingdom and making sure that our priorities are kingdom priorities, that we're thinking in a way that is congruent with the king that we claim allegiance to. And it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, I still, I'm not going to sell all my fun weapons, but I, I, I do think it's important for us to keep things in their proper place. Right? And to not hold tightly to something that is not eternal. I think that's important. So, just a little, little something that I wanted to share. Now, 6 and 7, the heart of it here. The passage that everybody knows by heart, right? Where we see that our king is coming. And this is how all of this is going to be achieved. This incredible thing that's been described for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace for the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This first part here, we see that it's going to be accomplished through a one-of-a-kind child. This amazing individual that is unlike anyone else that you have ever seen. And, and he's described in four ways here. And the first is wonderful counselor. His counsel is supernatural, and opposite to the world's counsel. It is absolutely 180 degrees opposite from what the world says. And that's an important reminder for us because we're inundated with what the world says all the time, every day. And that is why if you're like me, you read your Bible all the time and you're like, wow, God said that? Like, I'm going to have to change the way I think about that because that's not what I thought. You know, we don't think right. And we need to let God transform our minds and our hearts to be in line with his. And so he is the wonderful counselor. 
that teaches us the right way to think. Money is a great example for this. The world loves money. Money is power, right? Money is value. I mean, we, we talk about people's worth in terms of money. You know, well, what is their net worth? And God says that it's absolutely nothing more than a tool. That's all money is. It's a tool. God doesn't need it, but he can use it. And all we need is Jesus. And that's an important thing to remember. Uh, I read a quote recently by Jim Carrey, the great wise Jim Carrey. Um, <laughs> but he said this, and it was actually a wise thing that he said. He said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. End quote. And that's the truth. The world tells us all this, but it's a lie. And so he's the great counselor that redirects our thinking. He is also mighty God, El Gabor. It literally means that he is the hero God. He's a great warrior God. Reminds me again of Lord of the Rings and Aragorn who comes and he takes his rightful place as the king of Gondor and, and leads you know, humanity in, in vanquishing evil and in bringing peace and prosperity to Middle Earth, right? And it's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is in reality. Not in fiction, but in truth, that he will come and he will put an end to it. The victory's been won. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The victory is won, but he will come a second time and it will be done. And that's the hope in which we stand. He is also the eternal father. Jesus is the exact reflection of the father. He isn't the father himself. He is the son but he is the exact reflection of the Father. The, they share the same essence, although different persons. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so he is God, but he's not the Father. He's the Son, but he represents the Father. He's the Prince of Peace. We've talked a bit about peace already, but it is... The word shalom, which literally means, it's not just the absence of war, like we mentioned, it is like a sunrise is not the absence of darkness. It is the overcoming of darkness, right? That's the idea. It actually disperses it and makes it go away. And it is the way life is supposed to be. That's the peace that's being talked about here. It is the way life is supposed to be. And that's exactly what will happen in the age to come. It will be the, exactly what it's supposed to be. And then in verse 7 there we saw that this one-of-a-kind child is going to take over the whole universe. <laughs> this child that is born that we're going to celebrate in a matter of weeks the, the birth of Jesus. And, and the reason we do that is because 
He is alive and well, reigning and ruling over all creation. And he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And we belong to him. And this is the reality in which we stand. And one day he's going to come back and everything's going to be the way it's supposed to be. But currently, everything is underneath his control. He is reigning and ruling over everything right now. And so he's taken over the whole universe. It's a real kingdom. And it is a fulfillment of the promise to the tribe of Judah. If you remember back in Genesis 49 when uh, Israel was blessing his sons, when he blessed Judah, he said, well, I'll just read it to you. I think I put it down here. No, I didn't. I forgot to put it down there. I won't read it to you. But it, it said that the scepter will never leave the tribe of Judah. And there was this promise that there would be this idea that the Davidic kingdom, which would come later, would reign forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And by the way, the, the promise of the king that would come, that would bring prosperity and peace and joy to the people of God is a major theme throughout the Old Testament, a major theme. And it is the biblical Jesus. It is the, the thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation is the king who makes all things new. That's the truth. And he is going to govern with justice and righteousness. And it, his, the increase of his peace will have no end. So I want to close with uh, three things to remember. And the first is this. Our current suffering is temporary and not our true reality. And that can be a difficult thing for us to fully grasp in the midst of suffering. <laughs> right? That... It's not our true reality. And it is temporary. It's not going to last forever. Uh, I remember years ago, I was teaching through the uh, passage in the Gospels that, with a bunch of kids at Youth for Christ in Eagle Point when I used to work for them. And, and I was teaching through the passage where uh, the disciples were caught in the storm and Jesus walks in the water, right? And uh, I asked all the kids, why were they so afraid? And, you know, I had some things written down. But this little elementary student raises his hand and he says, because they didn't know when it would end. And I was like, that's really good. I was like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's way better than what I had written down. And I was like, that's exactly right. They didn't know when it would end. You need to know that it's going to end. It's not going to continue. It's not going to be this way forever. It's going to end. It's temporary. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.18, 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's no comparison between the glorious hope that we have in Jesus and the temporary sufferings of this age. No comparison. And that's hard for us in the midst of suffering, but it's a truth that we need to hold on to. And it's a truth that will get you through 
Somebody who knows a lot about suffering is Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know who that is, she's a quadriplegic who has been a great testimony uh, to the Christian faith her entire life. But when she was 16, she was paralyzed from the neck down. And she says this. The best we can hope for in this life is a knothole peak at the shining reality ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever suffering and sorrow currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which await over the horizon. End quote. true his grace is enough and he gives us a clear glimpse in Jesus he will give us victory over sin and he will deliver us from our bondage this is the true reality in which you stand and so part of faithful living and having hope is that we lean into that reality and we don't continue as we were in darkness, but we learn to live in its glorious light. And it's a cooperation with the Holy Spirit that involves faith and hope and living in the reality in which we stand. Romans six twenty two and 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is both taking away our condemnation and he's giving us new life. And that's the truth. That's the reality in which you stand. There, the second point I wanted to mention is that there is light beyond the darkness, so focus on the light. For the faithful, beyond the darkness of this age, there is a shining light of hope, and that light is Jesus. Timothy Keller, who recently passed away, uh, said this, our Christian hope is that we are going to live with Christ in a new earth where there is not only no more death, but where life is what it was always meant to be. End quote. This is the hope. So beyond the darkness of this age, there is this glimmering hope that one day everything is going to be as it's supposed to be. And so therefore, we need to focus on the light and not the darkness. Don't look at all the darkness around you. Look at the light. Look at the truth that lies before you and look to Jesus. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so when we fix our eyes to Jesus, we can cast off the burden of sin in our life and we can not be torn down by the darkness that surrounds us but we can live in the hope of glory that is what we're called to do and that's why jesus said i am the light of the world 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here's the third thing I wanted to mention. Our hope is guaranteed and our future certain. It's a guarantee. It's, it's not, you know, the world uses the word hope all the time as wishful thinking. And almost in a way that they know it won't happen, right? Like I say things like, I wish I'd win the lottery, but I've never played the lottery in my life. Like there's no way I'm going to win the lottery, but we still say that. I, I hope that I win the lottery, right? But that's not what it means in the Bible. It means this confident certainty in the guarantee of our future. This passage is absolutely riddled with the past tense. I don't know if you caught that, but as we went through these seven verses, it's past tense all the way through. This has happened, this has happened, this has happened, and yet it's future. It hasn't been fully realized yet, and yet it's spoken of in the past tense. There's a reason for that. It's a guarantee. That's why Paul said in Romans 8.30, he said, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Paul says it too. It's a guarantee. You are not glorified yet, neither am I, but it's as good as done. So look forward to it. It's certain. He has already done it. What was the last thing Jesus said before he died? It is finished. Tell Teleestai in the Greek. It is finished. And it's in the perfect tense, which means it's a past action with current realities and future ramifications, which means it is true then, it is true now, and it is true forevermore. It is finished. The work is done. He lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he's alive and well today, reigning and ruling over all creation. And all of us who put our faith in him will have eternal life. That's the truth. Because it's finished. The work is done. He saves you single-handedly. He paid the price. He gives you his life. And you get to live forever. Now and forevermore. You have his spirit indwelling you right now. You get to live and walk in that reality right now. And you get to experience it in the fullest sense in the age to come. That's why we rejoice. I'm going to close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Let this one great, gracious, glorious fact lie in your spirit until it permeates all your thoughts and makes you rejoice even though you are without strength. Rejoice that the Lord Jesus has become your strength and your song. He has become your salvation. End quote.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that that we would not be overcome by the darkness in this world. That your light would shine in us and through us. That we would be intentional both individually and corporately in fixing our eyes on you, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and that we would cast off the burden of sin and live in the freedom of your life, looking forward to the age to come in which one day that battle will no longer be a struggle at all. But we will live in the peace in which it was always meant to be in perfect harmony with you, in perfect harmony with each other. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.